Okay, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 11, chapter 11, and I apologize to you for our class leader leading you astray again, Scott that is. We did chapter 10 last week, and I can see that Scott paid close attention. We are in chapter 11 today, but as you turn there, let me just fill you in on what we covered. There was a man named Nahash. He was the king of the Ammonites. He died. His son was a fellow named Hunan, and he uh, was uh, visited by a diplomatic committee sent by David in order to express condolences to Hanun, that's the guy's name, Hanun was the son whose father had died. And so um, perhaps this little map will give you a frame of reference. I showed it last week, but just to refresh your memory, I'll go over to this side this time. Here's Jerusalem around the center of your map. See it? Jerusalem, capital of Israel. So David sent his committee, condolence committee, from Jerusalem, and they went to the right, which would be going east. They went to Jericho. They crossed through Jericho. Then they crossed the Jordan River. Jordan River runs north-south and divides the land so that Israel is on the west side of the Jordan River. Other countries are on the east side. To the top of your map, that would be Syria, modern-day Syria, and just below it, modern-day Jordan. So they went through Jericho, crossed the Jordan River, got on a highway called the King's Highway, still in existence today. You can travel it. And they went up to Rabbah. See it up there, Rabbah? It says, if you have good eyes on the bottom of it, Amman. Why? Because it is today the capital of Jordan, Amman, Jordan. So that's where the Ammonites established their capital. David sends his people there, and they were not met with open arms. Hanun, the king, got very bad counsel from his officials. They said, watch out for David. He's really not here to offer condolences. He's here to spy out our city our fortress walled city, Rabbah, because he's planning an impending attack. And so this is what the king did to humiliate David's emissaries. He shaved off half of their beard, not a good thing, because a beard in that day was not just a fashion statement. It was a declaration of one's masculinity. Also, it had some ramifications for ceremonial worship. I won't go into it. Now we did last week. And he also cut off their garments up to their hips. So lots of stuff was showing as they walked around town. And this was really humiliating. When they got back and told David about all this, he was not happy. And he commissioned Joab, his number one general, to go back to this place and uh, make war against the Ammonites. Um, Their capital was unassaulted at this point. And David said, go, Joab, take the army with you, finish off unfinished business, and, uh, you know, uh, gain entrance into the capital city of Rabbah and deal with the Ammonites once and for all. Now, while David gave Joab that commission, this is what David is doing. I showed it to you last week. He couldn't sleep one night. He gets up. It's hot in Israel. He got up. He walked around the precincts of his palace, probably to get a cool breeze from this vantage point since his palace was on an elevated hill. It was on the ancient city of Jebus, once in the possession of the Jebusites. David conquered it, established his capital there (coughs) some 3,000 years ago. 
We were just there not too many weeks ago, right on this very site. Of course, you don't see this, but you see the ruins of David's palace to this day. And what you can see today, just as David saw then, you can see across this valley, the valley there is called the Kidron Valley, and those hills, that's the Mount of Olives. So he had a very clear view of everything beneath him, including the dwelling places of the inhabitants of the land. So that's kind of what's happening at this point. Now we look at verse 1, 2 Samuel 11. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. Why in the spring? Well, it's a lot harder to support um, your military in cold weather. They require resources and materiel that are not required during the spring. The spring is a better time to go out to war. Also, in the Middle East, in Israel in particular, at this time, it means the heavy rainy season has passed, and therefore there, it would be easier for troops to operate, also to have access to wheat and barley because they were being harvested at that time. So in the spring... Kings went out to battle. Now, the writer of this is making a point here. This was conventional warfare. Kings, of which David was one, they didn't stay back. This was not the time for vacation time. This was the time to go out to battle. The winter has passed. Now, go deal with those who oppose you. Deal with your enemies. And so the writer begins to tell us that's the case here. Um, But David sent Joab and his servants with him at all Israel. David sent his commander and he sent soldiers with him and they had some success against the Ammonites. They destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But then you read this very piercing statement that I don't think is just tacked on there for no good reason. The statement is, but David stayed at Jerusalem. I think the writer is already hinting to us that troubles on the horizon here david should not have stayed back he should have not been idle he should have been in the battle at this time but he stayed back at jerusalem now when evening came david arose from his bed walked around on the roof of the king's house again not unusual he's a king he's a lot on his mind it's hot they don't have air conditioning he's walking around on his roof and from the roof here's an artist's depiction of what he probably saw I don't know this artist, but I found this slide and threw it up there. You can see, once again, his vantage point. And from his vantage point, he could see all things, including this particular lady who we now read about. It says, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Was she doing it on purpose to get his attention? Maybe, but we don't know that. It's very interesting that the focus of attention in this chapter is not this woman, whose name we'll soon be introduced to. It's David. He was the most culpable one. Anyone, she, anyway, she's been, you say, what in the world is she doing bathing on the roof? And that's very typical there. The houses had flat roofs, and they were put to multiple uses. You could eat there, you could sleep there, you could bathe there. That's exactly what she's doing. And the text says the woman was very beautiful in appearance. I must tell you, as you search the scriptures, you're not going to find often that it comments on the physical attributes of men or women very interesting we're focused on that external stuff but the bible is not i'm not saying there aren't instances when one's physical attributes aren't mentioned but it's very rare in the bible so for the writer to say here this particular woman 
was not only beautiful, she was very beautiful. That is a highly unusual descriptive statement. In other words, we're getting the picture that David is increasingly in trouble. Uh, He's got time on his hands. He's idle. He should be out in the battle, but he's not. He can't sleep. He's out there. His eyes focus on this woman. He seems not to be closing his eyes, and (coughs) she happens to be very beautiful. David is in danger, and he doesn't realize it, or if he realizes it, he's doing nothing about it. By the way, that's how most men, women too, but I'm speaking of men in particular, usually get involved in stuff. I don't think David woke up that day and said, I'm going to have an affair with someone's wife. I don't think that was the case. There's usually a progression of steps. And guys, I wish we were a little more insightful and aware than we are. We seem to be carried away by circumstances. Now, David's trouble started a long time ago. He had at least eight wives. He had a ton of concubines. God never authorized any of that. The guy had a sexual problem. You know, it really wasn't sexual. It was due to unmet emotional needs. It's almost never about sex. Did you know that? Affairs, pornography, all that stuff. It's almost never about sex. It's always about unmet emotional needs. You know what happens generally? A guy says, even a gal uh, says, uh, God, I, uh, I don't like my present life circumstance. I'm not satisfied at work. I'm stressed and tired and all the rest. <clears throat> Uh, I could pray to you about it and wait on you to help me out. Or I just take matters into my own hands. That's the temptation for a guy. It's not the sexual deal. It's that I could usurp God's role. I do not have to wait for God to relieve pain uh, and give me pleasure, legitimate pleasure. I don't have to wait on God. I can be autonomous from God and I can do things myself. If I can find a way to increase pleasure and decrease pain, I am my own God. I don't need to wait on him. That's the underlying problem behind all sexual misbehavior. That's it. If it goes misdiagnosed, you're going to confess the wrong thing. So you can say, I have a pornography problem. No, 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 no. Pornography is the symptom of your problem. Your problem is a quest to be independent from God. I have a way literally at my fingertips on my computer whereby I can increase pleasure and decrease pain. I do not have to wait on God. That's the temptation. So David, the roots of this quest to be uh, autonomous from God started in David's life a long time ago. And and, uh, anyway, things are terribly developing over here now he's idle he's safe he's secure he's successful he took off his armor he is vulnerable and doesn't even see it that's a problem so rather than taking control of events the events are taking control of him so verse three david sent and inquired about the woman big mistake and one said is this not here's her name bathsheba daughter of eliam wife of uriah the hittite bathsheba means in hebrew it's bat sheva bat sheva uh, daughter or seventh daughter or daughter of the oath that's what her name means uh, her uh, father's name was Eliam. We'll read about him in just a second. But here's what's happening with David. Uh, he knows better. Come on. He knows what 
the Bible, the Bible available to him then said about adultery. It prohibited it. He knows what's going on. But his eyes started to affect his thinking. Guys, I'm speaking to you in particular here. That gets us into huge trouble. That's where it begins. Be careful. It is not sin to see an attractive lady and admire her. It's getting to be problematic when you go back for the second, third, and fourth look. Then when you fantasize, you get this picture of her, and you fantasize being with her, which I'm sure was what David was doing. He wasn't just looking, admiring her beauty. He was imagining him, her, himself with her. Um, you, you cease to think straight. So he's really casting caution to the wind. That, guys, I would encourage you just like I'm encouraging me. Watch the eye gate. I don't think you should have a computer tucked away somewhere where no one has access to it. Who do you think you are? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Man, you ought to have your computer screen where your kids could have access to it. Your wife could have access to it. You ought to have every safeguard in the world on that doggone thing. Lest you stumble upon a site um, you'll go back to. Be very careful about what you watch on TV. <clears throat> Be very careful about what movies you see. Uh, it's a strong man who acknowledges the spirit in me is strong, but my flesh is weak. And given the right circumstances, just like David, very interesting. When things were going really smoothly, he is most vulnerable. He's been quite successful. Everything's cool. He's not in the battle, all the rest. Boom, look out. Uh, the enemy moves in at that particular time. So her uh, father is a guy named Eliam. We read later on in Second uh, Samuel that Eliam was one of David's best fighters. She had good lineage. Her father was a noble fighter, it, one of David's select uh, fighting men. Furthermore, her grandfather was perhaps David's most trusted counselor. Let me read this to you. Second Samuel 16, verse 23. The advice of Ahitopel, that's Bathsheba's grandfather, which he gave in those days was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahitopel regarded by both David and Absalom. My goodness. Her father was a person of nobility and honor and credentials. Her grandfather had quite a pedigree. David knows about all this. Furthermore, her uh, husband, she's married. She's the wife of a person named Uriah the Hittite. He's not an Israelite. He's not a native-born Jew. He's an outsider. He becomes a resident alien. He marries a Jewish woman, but he serves nobly the cause of Israel and of David. And the Jewish king is not so noble at this time. So in spite of all of this, I'm telling you guys, when you let things go too far, you can't think straight. You and I have got to cut things off much, much sooner. We got to draw the line in the sand with regard to sexual pleasure and uh, activity because we're not going to get back, I'm telling you. So you'll see this downward spiral with, with David over here now. So um, he can't, he should be thinking of her grandfather, her father, her husband, but he's not able to at this point. All he can think about is being with this woman. He's got this imprint in his mind now about what she looks like and what it would be 
to be with her. He had defeated a giant before. His name was Goliath. But now he's facing a bigger giant, lust. It's about to defeat him. Guys, the external challenges we face, we love those. We're geared for it. But the real challenge is inside, character. Character. That's the one to really fight. So verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. Look at this. Things are really progressing. And when she came to him, was she responsible? Well, hang on just a second. It doesn't matter. <clears throat> Look at the imbalance of power. He's the king. He, he summons one of his subjects. Come on. What an imbalance of power. You know, uh, I, I used to function as a licensed professional counselor, state of Texas, LPC, meaning we operate by a code of ethics, still do. Meaning if I'm in a counseling situation with a woman and I have sexual relations with that woman, the circumstances are irrelevant. I'm culpable. I lose my license right away. Should be that way. What if this woman uh, forced herself upon me? What if she stripped down naked in a counseling center situation, begged me to have sex with her? Even if I did do that, I'm the culpable one because of the imbalance of power. Can you see that? You have a, you're a pastor, you're a counselor, an needy person comes in, you could take advantage of that individual, as David could, and therefore, even if Bathsheba invited this, it's absolutely irrelevant. He's the most culpable <coughs> one in this particular case. And so, um, verse 4, David sent messages, took her. When she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Now, some people will say, yeah, but sexual mores were different in that day. No, they were not. Not for God's people. Listen, Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. That was in the Torah, which David had available to him. In spite of the fact that all the other kings had harems, it doesn't matter. For God's covenant people were under a different set of standards. Furthermore, Leviticus 18.20, you shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. And furthermore, David knew the penalty for this was death. Look, Leviticus 20 verse 10. If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Holy moly. David is an intelligent guy. It's not a matter of education or IQ. It's a matter of character. It's sinful inclinations, unchecked, and he was absolutely blinded to it. He had no insight into his own inner motivations. He cast caution to the wind in spite of all that he knew about the prohibition, the penalty, etc., etc. He's still proceeding on a path of destruction. And so it says, David sent messengers and took her. I'm telling you, nothing about this makes sense. For instance, David was, <clears throat> ooh, that's the wrong slide. Don't look at that. David was, at this point, at least 50 years old. Middle-aged guy. I mean, you think you're getting over this. You're not some junior high, high school kid having some sex with some, some girl in the backseat of a car. Good night, he's a grown. No, it doesn't happen that way. So you older people, guys, uh, I'm one of them. There's no statute of limitations. There's no age cutoff on sexual temptation. Be careful. 
So, so, so David, not only that, he had many wives. I mentioned at least eight are named. He had an innumerable number of concubines. So much for the theory that if uh, I have sex with others other than my wife, uh, I will satisfy my sexual desires? Absolutely not. All the studies indicate that a proliferation of partners does not satisfy your legitimate sexual desires. Doesn't satisfy it. Also, a proliferation of partners never gets to your unmet emotional needs. That's the way it is. Never, never, never. And so David had all these women. Why does he need someone's wife? Uh, also, Uriah was a person, as we've seen, of honor and virtue, etc., etc. And yet, in spite of all of this, David, David, no, he could have stopped it, but he didn't stop it. This was not an impulsive, sudden thing. This is not a, it just happened. You don't fall into this. There's always a progression. For instance, this is what I wanted to show you. First, David saw. Well, it wasn't his fault that he saw, but he didn't have to keep seeing. He could have gone to another area on the porch. He could have gone in and read a book, something like that. Second, so David kept looking. David fantasized. And that's the thing, guys, that will kill us for crying out loud. By the way, <clears throat> I know I'm being awfully graphic here. We got any young kids over here? Okay. Good, because if so, I'm going to ruin them. <clears throat> In the fantasy, guys, you are the stud. <laughs> and that's the beauty of the fantasy, because the fantasy is not reality. The reality is you've got to work at it. You have to work at a sexual relationship with your partner. It just doesn't happen. And, but in the fantasy, there's no work involved. You just, you know, everything is cool and all that kind of stuff. So the fantasy is just an absolute killer. And then uh, here's what he did. He inquired over. Big mistake, big mistake. He didn't need to know more about this particular woman. And then, of course, his lust was absolutely un. Checked, and then he did this. He sent for her, and then he did this. He took her, and then he did this. He committed adultery. So can you see the steps, the progression in all of this kind of a deal? There's an opportunity to stop it along the way. Someone said, if you do not flee, you will fall. So the thing to do is to flee. You know, the Bible never tells us to stand up and Fight sexual passion. It doesn't say that at all. You know what it says? It says this instead. It says run for it. <laughs> run, run from it. Flee immorality. You don't stand, you don't look it in the eye. You don't get that close to it. So I'm going to make a dogmatic statement here, and you can fight me on this. There's not a person in this room, in this church, given the easy opportunity, <clears throat> who would have a capacity to say no. Given the right circumstances and the right opportunity, you're dead. So am I. Therefore, you run. You don't give it that opportunity. So I had to bring my car to a mechanic the other day. He's a member of the church, great guy. <clears throat> I had to leave it there. And then I walked home because I had to walk home. I had no other ride. And thought it's a nice day. What's the difference? I'll walk home. Then I get a call from the guy's wife later in the day. Stuart, your car's ready. You can come pick it up. I said, oh, thanks so much. It'll take me a while. i got to walk over to pick it up. She said, oh, no, we can send our daughter to come get you and give you a ride. 
I trust the daughter. I know her. I've known her since she was a little kid. I don't trust me. I'm not getting in the car with somebody's young daughter. I'm not getting in the car with that daughter's uh, mom. I'm not getting in the car with, with anyone except my wife. Why? I'm not so virtuous, spiritual, and strong. I learned from David. Better people than me can fall. Desire. There's not a guy in this room who doesn't have a desire for sex with another woman. <clears throat> desire plus opportunity equals disaster. That's the formula. Desire plus opportunity equals disaster. Therefore, you want to control the desire by being filled with God's spirit. And you want to deal with the equation on the opportunity end as well. I'm not getting in a car alone with a woman. I don't counsel behind closed doors with a woman. I'm very careful about touch with a woman. Touch is important. I like the sideway. I told you this. Pastoral hug. You don't pull a woman in. You pat her on the back. This kind of deal. Nothing wrong with that. Why is that? I don't trust me. The spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. And a guy who uh, doesn't feel the same way as a sitting duck, he's David. It's ready to happen to him. So anyway, uh, the text goes on, verse 5. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, commander, general, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. They're out in battle. David stayed back home. So Joab sent Uriah to, excuse me, to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. That's what Joab thought was, uh, Uriah thought was going on. The king wants to know about the status of things in battle. He doesn't know what's going on. David then said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. What does that mean? It's a euphemism for go home and enjoy the pleasures of being home with your wife. That's what that means. David is plotting. I'm going to tell you something. Sexual sin leads to all kinds of other stuff you never planned on doing. So now he's saying, oh, my goodness, I got this wife's, this guy's wife pregnant. I know. I'll bring him home from battle under the guise of, you know, I need a report of how the battle is going. Then I'll send him home, you know, where he can wash his feet, meaning sleep with his wife. And then the baby conceived, well, you know, I'll attribute it to him. I'll be off the hook. That's what happens. So Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. And David sent probably food and wine to Uriah's home, you know, to kind of uh, increase the probability that they're going to get together. And so, verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants, his bodyguards, of the Lord. He didn't go down to his house. Oh, my goodness. Uriah, the non-Jewish resident alien soldier at war, is much more noble than David, the Jewish king. And so, verse 10, uh, I mean, uh, so he he didn't go home. So, verse 10, when they told David, saying, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to him, have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. They're at war. They take the ark, kind of like a good luck charm, out with them to the battle. And Uriah, a noble guy, is saying, good night, my comrades are out there in battle. I can't go home and enjoy the pleasures of my wife while their lives are on the line. And so... Uh, 
He says, my Lord, Joab and servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? But by your life and the life of your soul, I, I won't do this thing. You know, David had a higher position. On the vocational success scale, we would say, this guy made it. He's a man's man. But he was puny in character. Uh, Uriah achieved much less on the socioeconomic scale by which men uh, judge their own worth and value. Uriah was not even Jewish. He's just an underling in the army. He's not the general, let alone the commander-in-chief, and yet his character far exceeded that of David. Guys, there's something about us. We pursue like crazy athletic accomplishment, academic accomplishment, succeeding in the workplace. These things are not bad, but not a one of them is going to matter. I'll tell you what's going to matter. A holy character when we see the Holy One face to face. I would encourage you, my fellow struggling men, put your emphasis on dealing with the giants on the inside, not the giant in the workplace and here, there, and everywhere. What about the giant of character on the inside? So Uriah far exceeded David, it seemed to me, in the character area. So David, verse 12, said to Uriah, stay here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him and made him drunk. See, sexual sin leads to unrepented of, leads to all kinds of other stuff. Well, his strategy is not working. Uriah refused because he's a noble guy to go home and have sex with his wife. So David said, maybe I can get him plastered. And if he's under the influence, you know, maybe I can then ply him to go home and enjoy his wife and this whole thing will be over with. So that's what is going on. And in the evening, he went out, Uriah, to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he didn't go down to his house even though under the influence he wouldn't do it. So now David's desperate. So that's what sexual sin does. Makes you desperate. You know what sexual sin? It gets you into this thing. It's like a download, uh, a um, downward spiral of sin. You start out and you think, oh, you know, it's just going to be a one-time deal kind of a deal. But then you're engaged in cover-up and all the rest. Now David's hatching a plan to murder Bathsheba's husband. He didn't start out thinking about murder. He didn't have murderous intentions, but this is the downward spiral of sin. Guys, gals, I encourage you, when you begin to see that you're sinning, try to stop it (laughs) as soon as you draw the line in the sand real quick, because you can get hooked into it. And uh, we underestimate the hold that darkness can have on us, even as Christian men and women. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah does not know he is carrying in his hand his own death warrant. Because the next verse says, he had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. David says that to Joab. Joab, put Uriah in the thick of things and then pull away from him so he's alone and he'll be... Folks, sexual sin always drags you into other sins you had not planned on committing. 
So, verse 16, it was as Joab kept watch on the city, he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite died. Now, Joab didn't exactly follow David's directions. Uh, He probably thought, no, that'll be too obvious. I'll do something more subtle. I will have him and others go fight near the wall. Really bad idea for this reason. Archers on the wall can just pluck you away. You don't want to get that close to the wall for the battle, see? So Joab sends Uriah there, and it's not just Uriah who takes an arrow and dies. What about the other men who died there as well? Innocent men. Can you see what un- an unbroken pattern of sexual sin. Look at all that it, look at the ramifications of it. And so Uriah dies and Joab, verse 18, reports to David all of the events, told the messengers saying, when you finish telling all the events of the war to the king, if it happens, the king gets upset, his wrath rises, say, and he says, why'd you go so near the city to fight? Don't you know they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, son of Jerub, Jerubasheth? You know who Jerubasheth is? Gideon. It's another name for Gideon. Gideon's son was killed earlier than this in a battle at the wall of another city. So it says, did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him? A woman, you don't want to be killed by a woman. And she dropped a big stone on Gideon's son at the wall, and he died. It was at a place called Thebes. And so uh, Joab is anticipating, maybe David will say, why'd you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And that'll make it right, because Joab knows that's what David wants to hear. He wants Uriah dead. So the messenger departed, verse 22, came and reported to David everything Joab said. And the messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us, that is the Ammonite men. They came out against us in the field. We pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. That's what David wants to hear. So verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. That's an ancient proverb. And it essentially says there are losses in battle. People die. So, David, it's a a subterfuge. Messenger, go back and tell Joab not to be upset by all this. That's the nature of war. People die in war. Fight the battle, you know, stronger. Overthrow it. You know, messenger, go back and encourage him. David, this is just a lot of words. David got what he wanted. Uriah is dead. Now, verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David (coughs) sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. And then she bore him a son. But the thing David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. I don't like this chapter. I wondered why it's in there. I don't understand why God couldn't just leave chapter 11 out. And then I found this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them, Old Testament people, as an example, 
And they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And now I know why it's in there. So you and I can learn from it. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Men, in particular, women, what's your plan for finishing well? You know, I don't have an ambition to be the pastor of a great church, write books, and be on a speaking circuit. Maybe I should. Can I tell you what my ambition is? I want to finish well. I just want to finish well. Why? Because very well-known pastors are dropping like flies. That's why. And they're better than me. What's the difference? I want to take heed. You know what I realized, guys? When I am hungry, when I am angry, when I am lonely, when I am tired, I am more susceptible to lust. Halt, H-A-L-T. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. By the way, those are the susceptibility factors for any addiction. Alcohol, drugs, compulsive shopping, lust. Therefore, I try not to get overly tired. I try not to be out every night of the week. I used to think that's the pastor's thing to do. You're out all the time. I used to think that was the virtue. Now I realize no pastor is that important. So instead, uh, I try to stay rested, healthy, whole, I try to find some things that are enjoyable and that to do and that have nothing to do with ministry. Nothing. I try to find life apart from ministry. Otherwise, ministry is a false god and it can't meet my needs. And then I'll try to get them met. So I try to stay healthy, rested, not unduly stressed. Sometimes you can't avoid it. I'm just saying as the general rule, balance. I notice a lot of my peers do a lot more than me. I don't care. I want to finish well. <clears throat> I just want to cross the line. You know what I want? I want the king to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Therefore, I say no to a lot of stuff with church people. I would rather get dismissed from a church <laughs> than make choices like David. I'm just not going to do stuff. I don't think God has given me the grace, strength, gifts, and inclination to do. I'm just not going to do it. <clears throat> I'm not lazy. I do plenty. I just don't want to climb a ladder. I don't want to be at the top of the pack positionally and at the bottom in terms of my character. <clears throat> I know why this chapter is in here. So that people like you and I can learn from it. Take heed lest you fall. Take heed lest you fall. That's why it's in the Bible. Now it looks like David's deception and cover up really worked for him until we read that this last terrible haunting phrase. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David sought to please himself, but in the process he displeased God. I don't want that to be the last thing said of me. 
Do you want that on your, is that your, the epitaph you want on your tombstone? Um, if not, plan now. Have a plan now to avoid going the way of David. Again, nobody falls into sexual sin. It's always, always a developing, sequential, incremental process. Start recognizing it now. Man, if you have unmet emotional needs, you don't feel satisfied as a man, you feel empty inside, you don't feel in control, get counseling. Let someone pick you apart and figure out what gaping holes there are in your life so that you don't seek to feed them with, fill them with Bathsheba because that will just make it worse. Now I want to ask you this question. Does this end the story? <laughs> what David did was not pleasing to God. That's it. Let's go home. Is that it for David? No, it's not. By closing this chapter with this statement, the reader is left with this haunting question. Now what will happen to David? He has broken, you see, at least four commandments, didn't he? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not covet. Four. Is it over for him? What's going to happen to him? It's not over for him because of this marvelous, great word, restoration. Do you know God loves his even sinning sons and daughters that he has a way of pulling him out of the dark downward spiral of sin and granting repentance if you're open to it and then restoring you to the same position? No, no. For ministers, I think sexual sin is largely a disqualifier from key roles of platform ministry, largely, in my opinion. You don't have to buy that. But though there is forfeiture of opportunities and so on and so forth, there need not be forfeiture of a vibrant, dynamic, close, intimate, satisfying relationship with our even most holy God because he's a God of repair and restoration. We have to end the chapter here, but Brother Chuck has the privilege of showing us what happens next. There will be room for repentance and restoration. David, in fact, is a man after God's own heart. Not that his heart was always pure and holy and blameless, but his heart was able to understand and accept his own sin. He made no excuses. He didn't say, everybody's doing it. You know, my wife has let me down. She's not kind to me. She always has a headache when I come home. You know, all this kind of, that's that's garbage guys he didn't do anything like that i know he repented because he wrote psalms about it read psalm 32 read psalm 51 you'll see and then see what god did when david repented restoration so guys gals uh i suspect at least one two or more in here um i suspect this is close to home for you where does it go It goes in the direction of repentance. Now listen, repentance doesn't mean I'll stop looking at pornography, I'll stop having sex with, you know, my secretary or whatever the deal is. That's not what we're talking about. You're repenting of the wrong thing. Repentance means I will stop trying to be in control of my own life 
and I will submit to my Father who knows best. Repentance is a change of direction. The guy given to pornography or uh, visiting a prostitute or whatever the deal is, that guy is simply saying, I'm taxed, I'm tired, I'm stressed, I'm in pain, I found a way to give myself pleasure, and I don't need to wait on God. That's what you have to repent of. You turn from that and you say, no, God, I come back to you. I will wait on you. I will pour up my heart before you. I'll speak about my unsatisfaction. I'll speak about marital discord. I'll speak about all this stuff. And then having spoken to you about it, I will wait on you to intervene and meet my needs your way. That's the repentance, you see. If you repent only of the sexual thing, you're only dealing with the symptom. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And if you get rid of the pornography thing, you'll, you'll uh, embrace something else. It's called symptom substitution, say. Symptom substitution. You have to get to the underlying problem. The underlying problem is our quest, whether we're male or female, to be independent of God. Every one of us, though we be saved, wants it. I don't want to wait on God. I don't want to have to trust God. I really don't want God to be in control. I want to be in control. And if I could pull it off, that's really great, because I would rather depend on me than on God. That's what you have to repent of. You come back to God and you say, no, you're on the throne. I have removed myself from the throne. You know what's best. You have my interest at heart. I would rather be in pain than be in sin. I'll stay in this painful, uncomfortable situation until you, out of your kindness and goodness, choose to resolve it. But I will not do things in a fleshly way. I won't do it. That's the repentance. Now, when you do that, get ready for restoration. God is not done with you because he has quite an interest in your life. It's not that you're that hot, so don't try to look for that. You're not. You're a worm, uh, by the way, and I speak to you as a fellow worm. But God has an investment. Don't you understand what redemption means? Redemption means I bought you. I redeemed you from the marketplace. Well, what's the redemption price? Jesus' blood. That tells me God has quite an interest in me, even if I don't have an interest in me. He does. He bought me. And even though I may feel like damaged goods, I'm God's goods, and he will not let go of his goods. I'm telling you, it's not over. It's not over. Repentance and restoration, you will see it in the weeks to come in David's life. That's why all this is in here. You know what I love about the Bible? It doesn't even hide the flaws in the lives of its own heroes. David is a hero. We know two things about David. You think about David, every little kid knows this. Goliath and Bathsheba. With reference to Goliath, we saw David being a man of faith. With reference to Bathsheba, we see Goliath being a man of the flesh. And that's true of every man and woman in this what we want to try to do is starve the flesh and feed the spirit and, th- and take care of yourself. Meet your own legitimate needs for rest, for nutrition, for recreation, so that you are less susceptible to the temptations of the evil one. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for putting this text in here, distasteful though it may be. It is distasteful because it's a mirror 
we've looked into it and we've seen our own image and likeness. That's why you put it in here, so that we would also take heed lest we fall and be known to be giant killers, as with Goliath, men and women of faith rather than men and women of the flesh. Oh, God, we pray for one another that we would finish well, uh, thereby being worthy of you declaring upon us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our heart's desire. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. God bless you, folks. Hope to see you next time. Not next week, but thereafter.